Welcome everyone to Real Leaders Overcoming Real Crap. I'm Meg Pogue, and this is the podcast for leaders and change agents who have passion, purpose, and want to cut through the crap to get stuff done. We discuss real issues facing real leaders and powerful tools and approaches to burst through the veil of confusion and bullshit, overcome plateaus, and address the most insidious challenges facing leaders, including their own worst enemies themselves. So in this podcast, I am really excited to be interviewing a close friend and confidant of mine, Mr. Dick Sanger. Um, And I met Dick when I got interested in Vistage and finding myself a good coach and a good coaching group um, and have been working with Dick as my Vistage chair for over a year now, I think, right? Yeah. Okay. So I wanted him to be one of my very first guests on this podcast for many reasons. Um, I'm going to introduce him now. And I have to say one of the main reasons I wanted to bring Dick to Real Leaders Overcoming Real Crap is that he has a really amazing career trajectory. And he's someone who's who's kind of uh, that seasoned, wise soul who can look back at things and really cut through the crap um, to talk about what he was able to overcome and why and just give you the real deal on things. So um, a little bit of background about Mr. Sanger. Um, he started with military service and after service went to graduate school to get his business degree and then launched into a very fast paced international career. So the first half of his career, he was an executive at three different industry leading multinationals, including RJ Reynolds, Sealand Corp, and also GlaxoSmithKline, GSK. Um, He then um, kind of had the courage and the bandwidth and wherewithal to strike out and co-founded a marine terminal company where he had to raise 33 million, find all the customers, out of nowhere, started that that baby from scratch with his partner. Um, He also is a swimmer, archer, soccer player, pro skier. And really cool thing that I see about Dick as themes throughout his his career is that he has always been someone who is passionate about supporting game-changing leaders. And he also has a voracious curiosity and love of learning that have served him well as he has continued to challenge himself and continue to level up over the years to new challenges. And Dick, one thing I have to say about my experience with you is that you are someone who is all in. You're authentic. You bring your soul to your work. And you're so curious and you just, you're that, the kind of person that can look for those opportunities and see through all the confusion and know exactly what you want and where you can contribute. And I really admire that about you. So thank you so much for being with me today. Like that was quite an introduction. I can't wait to meet the guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we made you sound real good so that we can cut through the crap and be really authentic about everything that you had to face during that time. Um, you're one of the busiest and most successful people I know, and that means that you have o- had to overcome immense adversity. So can you start by just giving us um, a little bit more about your path that's not on paper, your professional path? I just kind of gave the quick intro, but 
Tell us a little bit more um, about how you would describe that path and how that led you to where you are today. Well, Meg, that's a great question. Uh, I've always had mentors. You know, a promotion is doing something that you haven't done before. You haven't done it, so you don't know. But your mentor believes you can. Mm -hmm. And so I've been fortunate to have very powerful people. They seem to like me. Maybe they think me, me as a Boy Scout or something. I don't know. And so they keep asking me, Richard, my boy, we'd like to do this. Oh, okay, sure, I'll do it. I don't say no. They come up with great ideas. They give me all sorts of support and resources and then get out of the way. And luckily, somehow, I managed to, to succeed. Typically, I make chairman's dreams come true. So that's what I've done in my career, at least the first half. Let's go right into the crap. And by crap, I mean that dysfunctional stuff, right, that really slows you down, really annoys you, that stuff that comes up that you think, what am I going to do here? Like the soul draining stuff kind of makes you not even want to get out of the bed or the stuff that just feels really overwhelming. And I know that you have had your share of that. And that's what we like to talk to and talk about um, in this podcast. So can you tell me about any of these juicy circumstances um, where you hit some crap in your career? Well, there have been a bunch. I've been very fortunate in that the chairman always shielded me. Uh, so the arrows they take or they whatever it is that people are in the big leagues, there's only room for one key or two key players or whatever it is. And if they see you sweating, if they see you bleeding, they're all over you because, you know, oh, he's not fed, he's not wet, whatever it is. And so I, being a Boy Scout, just kept going, not knowing uh, all the wonderful things that the, the chairman were doing for him. But it was absolutely astonishing how many times. They pulled me out of the fire, um, which I didn't recognize until afterwards. But one of the problems, or one of the, the challenges there is, okay, it's great to execute, but your ego. As you, I, Three times uh, I, before the age of 39, uh, was an industry-leading, world-class exec. In my, I owned my vertical, the best treasurer, the best whatever it happens to be, working for the chairman. That gives you a pretty fancy idea of yourself. And so you become your own worst enemy. Of course, you tell jokes. You're always at the chair, the head of the table, because you're the chair of whatever it happens to be. And you tell these silly jokes or whatever it is. And of course, everybody laughs and says this one, stupid, it's bad, but I would do it. And so I believed all of this stuff. And I go way, way back to when uh, I was in the service, we had a war, the Vietnam War. And and so I end up, I end up, uh, you know, in, in the Strategic Air Command, and finally a squadron commander, uh, and then uh, get promoted, promoted, and the general says, hold it, Sanger, you're not going anywhere, you're going to be my aide. And I can remember the problem that being an aide, this is sort of an example, you can only be an, a general's aide for three years, period, because you begin to ascribe or be ascribed to have all the power of the general. So people defer to you. People are terrified. Oh, can you do this? Can you? They want to bother the general, who, by the way, is a regular businessman. He just happens to wear funny clothes, but he's, he's, he's the head of the, whatever it is, a very big company. And I remember one day at a base, I was thinking about something, and I didn't like the way the man, the, the airman, by the way, who saluted, they salute all officers, uh, as I left base and I chewed him out. 
And uh, this is terrible behavior. So I keep driving. I say, Sanger, that's it. You hit a wall. That is bad. Ego is beyond belief. That is so bad. So I back the car up all the way back to the base. The airman is now convinced he's going to be court-martialed or whatever you would do. By the way, I've sat on four court-martials, so it's not terribly pleasant, and you don't want to do it if you can avoid it. And I apologized to him. And I said, I'm so sorry. That was out of line. It was just wrong for me to say that. Will you forgive me? Yes, Captain Sanger. And he said, then I left. But I began to see that in all these big, and I kept landing all these jobs. I never asked for one. I didn't volunteer. They just, people found me and said, Sanger, you can do it. No, I don't know how to do that. Yes, you do. You'll figure it out. And behind that was this huge ego that saw things in a particular way because I was, quote, always right. I was always listened to. I had, the companies I worked for had more money than God. R.J. Reynolds had a 48% margin for a century. Sealand claimed more, but no, but we had, we had the biggest fleet in the free world. Okay, 64 vessels and all that. Plaxo, uh, on one of the drugs, I won't say which one, had a 92% margin. Now, of course, of cost 800 million pounds to get a drug approved, but you have to have 19 behind it that didn't make it. And you kept investing money. So are they gougers? I don't know. They, they've got to make enough money to be able to keep investing. Anyway, the point is that all of these processes, you end up developing an ego that, that cannot serve you well. And in my case, if I hadn't discovered you a year ago or two years, whenever it was, and uh, you had this fabulous program. And I thought, goodness gracious, you're coming out with a book on it. I really need this. And it showed me a way to get a grip on an ego that has served me well, but not all the time. Yeah. And many times uh, it, it, it should be tied up with duct tape in the back seat and, and have your higher self driving the car rather than my ego driving the car when I re- met that young airman who was at the gate. Yeah. And, and I should say, Dick, um, first of all, thank you for walking us through those experiences. And I should have said in the introduction that after I had been in your Vistage group a little bit, you asked me to work with you using my adversity cycle model. Um, and that that's when you were just, you were able to start to identify some of these themes that, have, that had held you back. Right. And you're hitting on a big one of ego that all leaders face. If you were leading, you're a change agent, you're an influencer, and you think you don't have ego, think again, right? We all have it there and it rears its ugly head when we feel threatened or scared or overwhelmed when stress comes. And so what I'm hearing you say is that you're able to look back in hindsight and see that you were in these positions where you had a lot of responsibility and a lot of esteem. But you were also being sheltered by these chiefs, by these other, right, like CEOs, where you were able to draw a lot of credibility um, and that you started to let that feed a negative ego, like a, a lower self that got a little unruly. And you yelled at people, for example, that officer. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about times where you feel like your ego was in control and what actually happened because of that? What, what was the result of, of this ego-based behavior? Sure. 
Uh, let me give an example. Uh, going back to my company, I'd done okay and I made some money and did stuff and was pretty pleased with it. And I thought, okay, I'll go off and found a company. And in six months, I'll be rich and famous. I only had to raise the $32 million. Remember, it's a greenfield site uh, on the waterfront with computers uh, and all of that. And so you have to be, uh, you know, pretty much on the ball. But I think if I could do that, that'd be just fine. Well, so I applied all the things that had worked for me in the past. When you cut through everything, there are only three things an executive do. You can be a finance person. You can be an operations person, and you could be a marketing person. That is sort of it. So at Darden, Colgate Darden, Graduate School of Business, a Harvard knockoff, by the way, and out of the 50s, um, basically, uh, you never got a class rank when you graduated, didn't have one, and they did not say what discipline you were in. You had to be a generalist. Remember, a generalist is a specialist in a number of areas. So I had to become a specialist in all of them. So, okay, that's fine. So what? Well, so I had been very good in finance, world class. Honestly, the, the kind of person who said, Pat Sanger's here. My gosh, he's on the dais. He's talking about whatever it is. That's great. Okay. Well, what worked for me, I was a corporate finance guy. Always had rules of money, had to execute well and deliver the goods. And the chairman, he or she would be thrilled. Well, so I applied that for ABT, my company, with my partner, who was the Marine captain. And uh, it was going kind of slowly. You can't be selling apples one day and oranges the next. You have to be consistent. So I we came up with all sorts of stuff and telephone books talking about how things work and the plans. And I kept hearing, oh, this is lovely. This is wonderful. This would be great. Um, oh, yes, we must do lunch. So I'm doing this. The first year goes by. I'm writing all the checks after the first million. I don't know about you, but it gets kind of personal. You know, you, you've got to keep going. Anyway, one thing led to another. And I finally realized that what we were missing was I had all the drawings and everything of this thing. I had all the agreements. I mean, where was it going to be? Well, I never had to worry about that. All my big companies, we own everything. If Reynolds is doing it. No problem. Sanger says he's, we're going to do it. We'll do it. Same thing with the Sealand and Glaxo. But I was just the guy, a suit with a briefcase. So I finally figured out that I needed a lease. I needed a 30-some-odd-year lease from the Port of Galveston. I went to them because they were really down on their luck. We ended up renegotiating a lease every month for 11 months. Remember, I'm writing all the checks now. Finally, after a year, we had a lease. Bingo. CIT, the world's largest fixed ass lender, said, okay, fine, I see where it's going to be. We're in. Count us in for uh, 21 million. Oh, that's really handy. That's great. So remember, I was, it was always just one thing I had to get, but I did, once I understood that and let my ego get out of the way and say, what, what do they want? Not what do I think will work? This is great. We're going anywhere. Lucky here or there. No, 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 no. It's not real. And so I had to, unravel all of that yeah and i first of all that's such a cool story <laughs> and we all we all have that dream right where we can take something that's, that's just an idea and actually create a beautiful reality a big beautiful reality and 
And the ego is going to be the number one thing that, that trips us up in that. So that's a really beautiful example of what it sounds like to me is that your, your ego was telling you, I'm great. I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done to be successful. Meanwhile, you're draining money and you're not getting the commitments. You're not getting the deals you need. And you had to stop and get kind of humble and curious. And this is where I think your curiosity saves your butt, right? When, when we can counterbalance that, I know what I'm doing. I'm confident. I'm assured. Um, but in reality, we have to balance that with a curiosity and a, I'm willing to be nimble and learn right now. And your ego doesn't want you to do that. Your ego just wants you to feel good and not look at the fact that you're using approaches that aren't working and that what you used to do that worked then may not work now because that is a scary proposition. And we all know our egos are really there to try and comfort us and assure us and make us feel better. But our ego comforts us in really dysfunctional ways, right? By saying, Dick, just keep doing this. Just keep doing what you've always done. It'll be okay. And you had to break that pattern and say, yes, I've done great things in the past and it's not working now. I need to get curious. What, what do I need to flip in my approach? And in your case, it was, I need this physical lease. I need this location. And that started to turn the key for you. Let me ask you this. How much ego do you see out there? You've been in big international companies and you've also supported a lot of entrepreneurs and very small operations as they grow. How much of a factor do you think ego is? More than it should be. Tell me more. What, what, what kinds of, what ways do you see people that you're coaching? You coach a lot of executives, um, of even, you know, larger companies or little startups. What, how do you see ego getting in people's way? I'm reminded of the comment. I think it was out of the bestseller out of the Middle East a long time ago. There are None who are so blind as those who will not see. And I've been surrounded by and dealt with leaders who thought they had the answers, they knew what they were doing, and they just missed it. They do it at their peril. But the ones, if you notice, all the people are running and working out, don't need to work out, they're fine. It's somebody with a body mass index, you know, of 35 probably needs to work out. No, they're not working out. They're busy holding a drink or whatever. I'm just kidding, of course. But it's an interesting observation. And so the folks that need the help the most are least likely to accept it. Won't believe it because you have a this confirmation bias. And so for years, I'm a widower twice and married again happily for the third time. If you've been married happily for 20 years or longer then, and your wife dies, then within 18 months, you get married again. So I, I listen uh, to what my wife suggests because it's probably a good idea. And the most remarkable thing is that we all get advice all the time, every day. Mm -hmm. uh, Dick, uh, what about such and such? And if it matches your view of the world, that may be your ego or whatever it is, if it matches your, your notion, these, oh, thanks. And you adopt it. You do it. If it doesn't match, you say, oh, thank you so much very much. And you ignore it. Guess which one you ought to be working on. The one that doesn't match your view of yourself. But you don't because you're blind to it. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so a lot of what, when we get on that, that path of survival and we're focused on making ourselves feel better, um, we don't want to look at 
the hard facts of, you know, the, you know, the financial model of my company isn't working maybe, or the culture of my company is so toxic, but I don't really need to focus on that. We'll be okay. Right. And, and we hear these themes come up over and over with leaders. And sometimes um, I know you as a coach, you just hold that mirror up, right? Like a, a kind and accurate mirror of please look at what's happening right now. Look through a different lens. Um, but when we give people advice and they're stuck in that place of ego, they just deflect it. That doesn't match what I want. That doesn't match what I've done. So I'm not going to take a risk because I want to feel safe and comfortable and secure. Right. And again, it, it's, as you say, it's at people's peril and it's, it's horribly unfortunate because there's a lot of talented, brilliant people with great ideas where their companies could be such huge contributors to the world, to their communities. And they're stumbling on themselves. Well, and culture, you know, eats strategy for breakfast. And so I've been in companies where uh, it wasn't my company. I was an executive there, but there was a problem, whatever it was. And so every once a month, we have this big meeting and come up with a new way to deal with it. Wasn't going to happen. Strat, you know, the, the strategies are fine, but the culture wasn't. And what is culture? It's what your people, the team, the members of the company do when you're not there. It's the simplest picture of what culture is. No, it can't be right now. It is. And if they're not focused on the right thing, um, you miss opportunities. And so do they. Yeah, absolutely. Have you been in situations where a culture was really dysfunctional? What did that look like? Or, or have you coached people who've told you about cultures of their companies that are super dysfunctional? Can you give us examples of that? Uh, I was living it. I, I was an executive officer of one company, actually one of the owners. And um, it, it was clear to me that one of the key members um, could short circuit almost anything. Whatever we decided we were going to do, um, that person could, could decide that enough, we're not going to do that. And the end result was, uh, was predictable. And we had a speaker once a couple of years ago. As he said, if it's pre predictable, it's preventable. You can do something about it. What? No, I can't be right. No. And so remember, what you permit, you get more of. And so people keep doing their, oh, I wish they didn't do that. They're coming in like, really? Whose fault is that? How much of that do you own? Uh, maybe you own a lot of it. Why are they coming in like, mm, well, guess what? You better find out why. And right now, 65% of all people working will be changing their job in the next year because they've decided they're, they're not putting it's something up with which they will not put whatever they're, wherever they're working. No, no, that's not right. You're supposed to go work for 35 years and get a gold watch. No, not happening. And so it's astonishing what's going on. All of my 40 company ones I worry about now as a vision share have extreme challenges with getting people to get somebody good. And guess what? Their competition knows that person is good. And guess who's going after that person? Your competition. At some point in time, they're going to win out. Mm -hmm. I get a call once a week by one of the, the CEOs, you know, oh, I lost so-and-so. Really? Well, and so one of them, I said, it's very, very simple. So you're in the hiring business and helping people fill these slots. Yeah, I am. Got great people. Problem is they keep getting poached. I said, no sweat. 
Here's what you do. Count on it. Just count on it. There's nothing you can do about that. Hire two for one for your people. Don't get upset when so-and-so is a key player and move on. No, it's going to happen. This is new. We've never run into this before. My guess is it'll slow down. But right now, for the next couple of years, we've, we've got a, everyone's challenged to find the resources they need. And the most important resource if in the old days went home every night. They drove home. Well, now we've got to take care of them. And when we see those cultures of competition and win-loss, whenever you have people who are losing and some people who are climbing over other people, right, that only works for so long. It's a very short-term mentality and a short-term approach because you've got a lot of people who are very resentful. And those people that climb their way up, they end up sliding back and have to slide back by all the people they wronged on their way up. Right? We've seen it a hundred times. And those types of cultures are often perpetuated from the top because we've got this myth that competition's good. When all the, the organizational development research and all the organizational psychology tells us the healthy cultures are the, that are the most productive are win-win. Very simple. And that's not a very American thing <laughs> to be win-win. Other cultures are much better at that. They're, they're more wired to be um, to accept their interdependence. And you know, North American cultures are very like, I want to be the standout, I want to compete, I want to win. Um, and they often confuse that with if I'm gonna win, someone else has to lose. But the problem is if it becomes cultural, as you said, it permeates. And then it becomes the way that people just are. And sometimes it's behind a leader's back. I've also seen it just as much perpetuated by top leaders. Dick, I want to ask you a more personal question. When you reflect back, so I want you to picture yourself back at the age of, in your upper 20s, okay? So the world is your oyster. What advice would you give that young man if you could go back in time? What a marvelous question. I guess I would tell him to keep it up but don't take yourself so seriously. I'm always all in, whatever it is. And that can be all-consuming. Also, just maybe you might miss something. The customers, I can recall the story of uh, Walton. He sold his company um, or whatever. He was no longer working. He came in one day in Arkansas. Little Rock to check on something. And there was this bright MBA in a suit and a tie with a clipboard. Uh, and he said, what's your name? I'm such and such. What are you doing? Well, we, we've got a $50,000 program to figure out what we should be selling. So wait a minute, stop everything. No, 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 no. The customers are out, them, out there. He pointed to the store, huge store. Uh, they know the answers and they have the money. They fired the guy. Forgot the 50000 and life was pretty good. So in a nutshell, what's your advice for those young, ambitious people who have their big dreams and they're all in? I'm hearing you say, don't take yourself so seriously. That's what you would have told the young you. Um, what advice would you give more generally for young, ambitious people, or even some of us who are not so young, but have big dreams? Um, coming from the school of hard knocks, from, from all the knocks you've experienced, what kind of general advice you would give? One bit of advice. It's terribly important to have a mentor 
I mean somebody who's really powerful. I remember I came up from Galveston after we'd sold the company. So I went to Clear Lake because it's working its way up to Houston, going up there. And I said to myself, who's the most important man? Oh, so-and-so is. Really? So I went to see him. He was head of the Clear Lake Area Economic Development Foundation, Jim Reinhardt. And I said, Jim, what are you doing? Anyway, we got along great. Two hours later, I wrote him a check for a thousand bucks and slapped it on the table. This was real money back then. He said, fine, you're hyped. I became the chairman of the International Development Council, did all sorts of stuff, took groups to farm and all. Anyway, the point is, find out who's in charge and see how you can help them. You, everyone needs a mentor, someone to say, you know, Meg, have you thought of doing this? Or, you know, this might help you. Because we don't know, and they've got the experience. Trust me, they've been run over, beaten up. They know the drill. There's some people you don't want as mentors. But all my life, I've had them. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. And then when I did figure it out, I said, oh, this is a pretty good deal here. And, and they'll, you know, they'll take the arrows out of my back or they'll do whatever it is. So I, so I, I do productive things or do things better. But I think the most important thing they can, they can do uh, is find someone in a, in, when I say powerful, someone of influence, they don't have to run around or pound the table, but someone who is well-regarded and respected and, and help them or, and do it in a way that doesn't seem obsequious. And my guess is that uh, you're in like Flint. I wish I would have heard that when I was a little bit younger. Um, but I can tell you that I avidly seek out um, guidance and I try to contribute to people who I see as very influential and inspirational for me. Um, to build those bridges. And um, I think the the antithesis of ego is asking, how can I contribute to someone else, right? The ego just wants you to be great, wants you to look great, and wants you to feel great, and doesn't even think, how can I contribute? So yeah, seek a mentor and seek them out in a way of, of how can I make this um, reciprocal? How can we support each other? So I think that's pretty dang brilliant there. So I um, love to end the podcast with a quote. And I have asked you to think about a quote. First, let me um, go ahead and wrap, wrap us up and we'll end with your quote at the very end. Um, so first of all, Dick, thank you so much for being on my show. It's been such a pleasure to have you and to have your lens. You have a really unique lens. You have a lot of wisdom to share. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, and all of you listeners, thank you so much for listening and being a part of Real Leaders Overcoming Real Crap. And um, be on the lookout for my book, The Adversity Hack, coming out in stores in just a couple weeks. I'm very excited about that. Uh, and actually, Dick, I think that's a good bridge to the quote that you have, because you read the manuscript before anyone else got to look at it when we were working together. Um, so I will hand it over to you to close us out. Well, Meg, thank you for helping me level up uh, with all of this work. You finally uh, told me, you said, okay, you've leveled up, that's it, we're done. You don't have to do any more of this stuff. And my takeaway, this remarkable, you know, you're going to be with the success of that book, mentoring all sorts of people that don't know it today, but will appreciate it tomorrow. And my quote would be one that actually is from you. And that is, do what gives you joy. What? 
Mark Kissinger, what are you talking about? So I can recall the other day I was working here, the dining room table was full of all sorts of stuff, all my vistage stuff. And my granddaughter was there coloring. Sloney, she said, Pops, uh, can you help me? Just a minute, Sloney, I'm going to finish this. I've got one more email. There's always one more. And I stopped. I said, Sanger, what are you doing, you idiot? She's not going to be here forever. Very soon, she's going to ask for the car keys and be gone. Uh, stop what you're doing. And do, because if it does give you joy, it's probably quite worthy and very helpful and not self-centered, all of which are probably helpful uh, to help her in the community. Thank you so much. Um, I feel a little bashful having someone quote me for the ending quote. Um, but it is a really powerful concept to follow your joy. And I think, you know, we're all wired to contribute certain things on this planet. And when we do those things and we make that contribution, we feel joy. And I think you are wired to be one of the most awesome grandfathers to have ever walked the planet. So I'm so glad that you're doing that. And thank you again. And this has been an awesome episode. Real Leaders Overcoming Real Craft. Thank you again. Meg, thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure to be here.